Spirit, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke chapter number 20. And of course, we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse. And uh, tonight we find ourselves in this portion of Scripture where we see the Lord Jesus Christ. I've entitled the sermon, A Battle of Wits with the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's really uh, what it is. It's Jesus dealing with his enemies, and they're trying to outsmart him. They're trying to ask him questions. Another title that I could have given this sermon is Q&A with Jesus, because they are asking Jesus all sorts of questions. And it actually began earlier in the chapter. I'm not preaching on this because I've, I've already covered this section. But just real quickly, if you notice there in Luke chapter 20, if you look at where it begins there in verse number 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass that on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple, he preached the gospel. The chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders and spake unto him, saying, Tell us by what authority doest thou these things? So I want you to notice that they come and they question Jesus. This is really where the questioning begins in Luke chapter 20 in verse 2 there. Uh, they ask, Tell us by what authority doest thou these things, or who is he that gave thee this authority? And he answered and said unto them, I will, ask, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then believe ye him not? But if we say of men, all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. And we've already studied that out, but we see here that Jesus is questioned by his enemies. And of course, it's a question meant to put him in a place where he says something wrong, does something wrong. So we've already seen that he doesn't answer that question. Then Jesus goes into this parable, which we've already dealt with and talked about. And then in Luke chapter 20 and verse 20, they come back with more questions. So there's actually four different questions that are asked in this chapter, but we're going to look at the last three at the end of the chapter. And what happens is that this is really kind of the last face-off between the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the, the, the Jewish leadership, and the Lord Jesus Christ before his, of course, crucifixion. And they are going back and forth, and he's going to shut them down. There's three questions that are asked and I like to think of it as three different rounds in this battle of wits. And two of the questions are asked by the enemies. The last question, which is the knockout punch, is actually asked by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So let's just jump right into it and, and look at these questions and look at these, uh, these different answers that are given regarding these questions. And if you're taking notes, you can maybe jot these things down. We can look at it under these different headings. Heading number one, if you want to write round one, we see a question about rendering tribute to Caesar. In Luke 20 and verse 20, the Bible says, And they, this is the local Jewish leadership, watched him, this is referring to Jesus, and sent forth spies. Now, I want you to notice what the Bible says here. And I don't want to emphasize this too much because I'm actually planning on preaching an entire sermon on this one subject at some point. But I want you to notice that the Bible in the Gospels of, of Christ is, uh, and, and in the book of Acts you'll notice that there's certain individuals that are, that are pointed out. And the Bible says that they sent forth spies which should feign, the word feign means to pretend, that they should feign themselves just men. So they're not just men, but they're pretending to be just men. And what I call these individuals, you see them a lot in the, in the book of Acts, 
where you'll see the Jews that are riling up people. They'll, they'll, they'll find people like this to try to attack the Apostle Paul and the work of God. And what I call these people are low-character people. These are people with no character, no integrity. They're, they're not just men, but they're going to come and feign and pretend uh, to be just men. Notice why they're coming. Notice their ulterior motive, that they might take hold of his words. And that phrase, take hold of his words, means that they want to catch Jesus in his words. In fact, in the parallel passage in Matthew, and you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew twenty-two fifteen, 15, the word that's used is entangle. They want to entangle Jesus in his words. They want to take hold of his words. Uh, notice what the Bible says there, uh, that they might take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. So they're coming to Jesus, asking questions, hoping that he'll give the wrong answer so that they can either turn him over to the Roman authorities because he gave an answer that went against the Roman government or hoping, I'm sure they're also hoping that he'll just give an answer that'll make him look bad in front of the people and then the, the, the people will turn on him or no longer want to listen to him or follow him. Notice verse 21, and they asked him. So here's the first question. Round one, question one. They asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly. Now, again, I want you to notice these low-character people. They're not just men. They feign themselves to be just men. They pretend to be just men. And now, notice how they're using flattery. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't fall for this. He sees right through it. We're going to see it here in a minute. But they're using flattery, and they say, We know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the persons of any, but teachest the way of God truly. And they're using flattery to try to set up the Lord Jesus Christ. And like I said, you'll see here in a minute that Jesus doesn't fall for it. But it's always amazing to me how, how easily people fall for these tactics of flattery and things like that. And you know, we should just be people who are people of honesty. And obviously... It's good to compliment people, but you should give authentic, genuine compliments. If you are actually thankful for something that someone did for you, if somebody has actually been a blessing to you and you want to appreciate them, that's a great thing to do. But in order to just walk up to somebody and butter them up and say something you don't mean just because you're trying to manipulate them or get something from them, that is wicked. That is wrong. It's wrong to be the type of person that feigns themselves to be something that they are not. So they come to Jesus and they're asking him this question. But notice they butter him up. They say, thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the persons of any, but teachest the way of God truly. And then here's the question, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? Now here's what's deceptive about their question. They asked, is it lawful? But the, 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 the problem is that being lawful can be interpreted in two different ways. Are you asking, is it lawful according to the law of the Roman government, which is the empire that is over the nation of Israel at this time? Or are you asking, is it lawful according to the Mosaic law, which is the law of God, and the, the, the spiritual law that is supposed to be followed by the people living in Judea and the nation of Israel. So they ask this question, is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? Now the word tribute there, when you see the word tribute, just think taxes. That's what they're asking about. A tribute is a payment made 
periodically by one state or ruler to another state or ruler, especially as a sign of dependence. It's money you give to somebody because you have to, because you're depending on them, because they are uh, supposedly protecting you. But really, the Roman Empire and all the empires, including the United States of America, it's like the mafia, you know? Uh, You have to pay taxes. We keep you safe, or if you don't pay the taxes, they're keeping you safe from, from themselves. They're the ones that are going to break your knees and put you in prison and whatever. So that's the idea, is that they have to pay tribute to Caesar. Of course, Caesar is the emperor of Rome, and they're asking Jesus this question right in front of everybody and in front of a big crowd. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? Now, again, just to understand the question about tribute to Caesar, they are trying to entangle Jesus with this question. They are trying to take hold of his words. They're trying to get him to say something wrong. And the idea is this. If Jesus said that taxes should be paid, if he said, yes, we should pay taxes, we should pay tribute to Caesar, then he could be accused of denying God's authority over the nation of Israel and over the people of Israel. And he could be accused of being uh, like a traitor, someone who's submitting to the Roman authority and therefore putting Jesus at odds with the local Jewish people. So if he says, yes, pay the taxes, then people are going to say, we knew you were a sellout. We knew you were like those publicans. We knew you were for the Roman Empire. But then if Jesus says, no, don't pay the taxes, if he said that taxes should not be paid, then he would be declaring himself pretty much an enemy of Rome and putting himself at odds with the Roman government. And that's actually what they want. They want him to say, don't pay taxes, so that they can then run to the Roman Empire and say, this guy's an anarchist, this guy's uh, rising up a rebellion against you, this guy is telling people not to pay their taxes. So they ask Jesus this question, and I want you to notice the deceptiveness of the question is that they ask, is it lawful, but they don't clarify, are you meaning by the law of the land, which is where we live, or are you meaning by the law of God? And Really, there's no right answer to this question because if he says, no, we don't have to pay tribute to Caesar, they're going to accuse him to Caesar, to the Roman Empire, and say, this guy is uh, uh, trying uh, trying to cause anarchy against and rebellion against the Roman Empire. And if he says... If he says, yes, pay tribute to Caesar, then they're going to say he's a sellout and he loves Rome and he's not for our people. Now notice there, Luke 20 and verse 23. But he, and remember, this is a battle of wits. And here's the thing. You might think you're pretty smart and go against a lot of people, but one person you should never try to have a battle of wits with is God. And you say, well, who would do that? Uh, You? Every time you try to explain away why you can't do what the Bible tells you to do. So you don't act like it's not something you don't do. We all do it. But he, here's the declaration of deity, perceived their craftiness. The word craftiness means their shrewd deception, what they were hiding, what they were actually intending to do. But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, why tempt ye me? So notice he doesn't fall for their flattery. He says, I know you're trying to catch, the the word tempt means to test or to put on trial. He said, why are you trying to catch me in my words? Why are you trying to get me to say something wrong? They're asking this question. Is it lawful to pay tribute unto Caesar or no? And then, of course, we see the Lord Jesus Christ 
the master instructor, the, uh, the master uh, uh, answer giver, because we've already seen him do this earlier in the chapter, and then we see him do it again. He doesn't answer their question necessarily, but he does answer their question in just an ingenious way. Verse 24, Jesus says, show me a penny. And of course, a penny is a reference to a Roman coin. We call we have a coin in the United States called a penny also because the United States of America is actually, we were set up a lot of ways to picture the Roman Empire, which is why all of our capital buildings have col- columns and things like that, like you would have seen in, in, in Greece or in Rome, uh, which is why we have a penny, just like they did in the ancient world, which is why we're called a republic, which is what the Roman Empire was called before they had an emperor. So there's connections there because, of course, Rome was part of, uh, and was part of the Babylon spirit. And, of course, we know that the United States is end times Babylon, and that's a whole other thing. I'm not even sure why I'm even getting off on that. But I just thought about that because of the penny. I just thought that was interesting. Show me a penny because I can ask you to show me a penny, and we could do the same thing here. He says, show me a penny. And he asks the question, whose image and superscription hath it? So the question is, whose image, whose picture is on that penny, on that coin, and superscription? That word superscription means the writing or the engraving on that coin. They ask, should we pay tribute to Caesar? And of course, just like our pennies, just like our dollar bills have pictures and images of our leaders, just like most foreign currency has pictures and images of their leaders. At this time, the penny had a picture of Caesar himself on the penny. So Jesus says, show me a penny. And then they give him a penny. It's interesting because even this is an amazing way to answer the question because they're asking, well, who should we pay tribute to? And just the fact that he can ask the question, show me a penny, and they look in their pocket and pull out a Roman coin shows the fact that they're under the Roman authority, they're under the Roman system, they're under the Roman empire. So he says, show me a penny. They, got, they, they show him a penny, and then he asks them a question. He says, whose image and superscription hath it? And they answered and said, Caesar. So he, said, Who? he says, who's this, who's this guy? Whose picture is this? They said, well, that's Caesar. And then he gives the answer, verse 25, and he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. They tried to get him to say, no, take, take the money that belongs to God and give it to Caesar. That's what they wanted him to say. So that they could make him look bad in front of the Jewish people. Or they were trying to get him to say, that's God's money, it's not Caesar's money, don't give it to Caesar, give it to God. So that they could go to Caesar in the Roman Empire and say, he's an anarchist, he's creating a rebellion. Jesus says, well, here's the thing. It's got his picture on it. So why don't you render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's and unto God the things which be God. And here's the thing. Today, you and I, we know this story. Everybody, every Christian pretty much knows the story. If you go to church, if you're uh, someone that is uh, in church for any length of time, and, and we're used to this answer, but this is really an ingenious answer. And here's the truth. If you would have never read the story, you would not have came up with this answer you would have said something stupid. You would have whatever. But Jesus, obviously, he's God. He says, show me the penny. (laughs) They pull a penny out. 
who's, who's this? I mean, as soon as he asked the question, who's this guy? They should have already known. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God. Now, regarding this answer, I want you to understand there's two different applications that we can learn from this. The first is the primary application or the earthly application, and it is this. Go to Romans, if you would. Keep your place there in Luke 20. Obviously, that's our text for tonight. Go to Romans chapter 13. Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 13. I'm going to preach something to you that people would have... When I preach this, people say this about me, and the same thing they were trying to say about Jesus. But the earthly application is this, that the Bible teaches that you should pay your taxes. And I know among, for some odd reason, among fundamentalist Christians and whatever, everybody thinks that you're supposed to, like, not pay your taxes. But I, the, here's the problem with that. And, and people get mad at me because they're like, we're supposed to be libertarians. Well, I, I never signed up for that. I'm a Christian. I think we're supposed to be Christians. I don't care about your political ideology. I could not care less than I currently do. Because I only care about what the Bible says. And in the Bible, Jesus was asked, hey, should we pay tribute to Caesar? And he looked at the coin and said, well, it's got Caesar's face on it. So go ahead and give it back to Caesar. And if people ask me the question, should we be paying taxes to Washington? Well, it's got Washington's face on it. So why don't you just give it back to him? I mean, it's literally the same answer. The earthly application is this. Pay your taxes. Romans 13, 5. Look at it. Look. You can't get away from it. I know people don't like it. Whatever. I don't care. Romans 13, 5. It doesn't matter what I say. Like when I say things that are, that are not patriotic, then I'm just this communist, Venezuelan communist. And when I say things that are patriotic, like pay your taxes, then I'm a sellout. It doesn't matter what position I take. You know what? I'm just going to take the biblical position. And you can do whatever you want. Romans 13, 5. Wherefore, notice what the Bible says, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. And look, we understand. Well, let me just read the verse and then I'll make the comments. Look at verse 6. For, for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Notice the Bible says, For this cause pay ye tribute also. Verse 7. I wonder where Paul got this from. It's almost word for word what Jesus says. Render therefore to all their, excuse me, render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. You know, the Bible teaches that we're supposed to just go ahead and pay our taxes, and we're not supposed to be these people who are supposed to try to avoid paying taxes or, or just make it our life's work to try to uh, get rid of the tax system or the tax code or get rid of the IRS. Look, I'd love to get rid of the IRS, but I'm not going to make that my main goal in life. Amen. Go to Matthew 17. Now, let me just say this. And, and again, I preach this, and people think like, oh, you're just a coward. It's funny how people who sit in the pew want me to get up and say, don't pay your taxes. You know, I'm the one that's going to go to prison. And they're like, you're the coward. Okay, why don't you go start a church and then you preach it? And, and here's the thing. That's not even the point. The point is the Bible doesn't even teach that. I say, well, oh, well, are you some sort of a, just one of these preachers, these 
what, what do they call us, the FEMA preachers? Look, I don't like paying taxes. I disagree with paying taxes. And you say, well, why is that? Because of some political... No, here's why it is. Because that's Jesus' Jesus' position was he, had disagreed, he disagreed with the concept of paying taxes. Look, in my life, I'm just trying to, to the best of my ability, to think and live and act as close to how Jesus Amen. lives and acts. And that should be all of our goal. You say, how did Jesus feel about taxes? Here's how he felt about it. He didn't like them. So they prove it. Matthew 17, verse 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, the they that was referring to Jesus and his disciples, they that received tribute money, that's the tax collectors, remember tribute is, is taxes, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, doth not your master pay tribute? So here's another time when Jesus asked, do you pay, do, well actually Peter's asked, does your master, does Jesus pay tribute? And, Jesus, and, and Peter answers the question, verse 25, he saith yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him Jesus stopped him, saying, what thinkest thou, Simon? So they asked Simon, does your master, does Jesus pay tribute? He answers yes. Peter answers yes. Then he comes in the house, and Jesus stops him, and Jesus says, let me ask you a question. Look, whenever Jesus is going to ask you a question, you know you're in trouble. He says, what thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, of strangers. The question is, should governments tax their own people or should they tax foreigners or other people? And he says, who are they taxing? And he said, and the answer to the question is, of strangers. Jesus said unto him, then are the children free. And the point that Jesus is making is this. The reason we're paying taxes, Peter, is because the Roman Empire sees us as foreigners because we are foreigners. Because they're an empire that has overtaken our empire. And what he's saying is, this is God's land. This is the land that God gave us. This is the nation that God gave us. Obviously, at this time, we're still under the old covenant. And what Jesus is saying is, we should not be paying taxes to the Roman Empire. We should be free. We're in our own land. That's what Jesus believed. He said, then are the children free. So look, did Jesus like the idea of paying taxes? The answer is no. But... The question is not that Jesus liked the idea of paying taxes. The question is, did Jesus pay taxes, verse 27, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. This was Jesus talking to Peter. Because you're going to offend them if you don't pay their taxes. Just know that. Go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up a fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. Take, Jesus says, that take, and give unto them. Notice what he says, for me... And for thee. So here's what's interesting. Jesus disagreed with the concept of paying taxes, but Jesus paid taxes anyway. You say, well, what, what's that about? Here's what we can learn from the Lord Jesus Christ regarding taxes. That we may disagree with the concept of paying taxes just like Jesus did, but just because we disagree with it does not mean that this should become our crusade or our fight, and this, this fight of not paying taxes, the point is this, we should not be dying on that hill of not paying taxes. It's, it shouldn't be something that we care about so much. I mean, literally, preachers go to prison for not paying their taxes. Ken Hovind went to prison for refusing to pay taxes. I mean, and, and you got to ask the question, 
Is it really that important? You lost your wife, you lost your ministry, you lost your, your children. You went crazy, came out of prison insane, literally. But it was worth it for filthy lucre's sake. Look, money is not something ever worth fighting over. Anyone. You shouldn't fight with your family about money. You shouldn't fight with the government about money. You shouldn't fight with anybody about money because money is the least important thing in God's economy. So the question is this, should we pay taxes? No. Are you going to pay him? Well, it's got his picture on it anyway, so just give it to him. It's not a fight we should fight. It's not something we should care about. So the earthly application is pay your taxes. And look, here in Matthew 17, we see Jesus paying his taxes. In Luke 20, we see Jesus paying his taxes. In Romans 13, we see Paul telling us to pay our taxes. You can't tell me the Bible says to go live out in the middle of nowhere and avoid paying taxes. doesn't say that. Now, you can do that if you want, but you're dumb. Go back to Luke 20. Luke 20. There is an earthly application, and it's to pay your taxes. Render unto tribute things unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. But there also is a spiritual application here. Because the words of Jesus are very powerful words. Luke 20, 25. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's. And of course, Caesar is a picture of the world. And the spiritual application is this, that the things that belong to the world should be rendered back to the world. Romans 12, we saw this, I think, on Sunday, but let's look at it again real quickly. Romans 12, if you're there, and look, we're just in Romans. I meant to tell you to keep your place there. Romans 12 and verse 1, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 12, 1, the Bible says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Notice verse 2, and be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You don't have to turn here. I'll, I'll just read this for you. In fact, you go to Genesis, if you would. Genesis chapter 1. 1 John 2 says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So what does the Bible teach? It teaches this. Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We don't need the world's music. Give the, give the world their music back. We don't need it. We don't need the world's music. We don't need the world's philosophy. We don't need the world's clothing style. We don't need anything that the world has to offer. If it's the world, render it back to the world. Let Caesar have what Caesar has created. It's not for us. So the application is this, the things that belong to the world should be rendered back to the world. And then the application continues. He said, render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's and unto God the things which be God's. Not only should the things that belong to the world be rendered back to the world, but the things that belong to God should be rendered back to God. Now here's what's interesting, is how was it that Jesus was able to show them that the penny belonged to Caesar. He said, show me a penny. They showed him a penny. He says, whose image? Whose image is on this coin? Who is this? 
who does this look like? He said, Caesar. He said, well, if Caesar's image is on the coin, then render it back to Caesar. Here's the interesting thing, Genesis 1, 26. We're looking at the creation story. Genesis 1, 26, the Bible says, And God said, Let us make man in our, don't miss it, image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. See, Jesus puts the coin up, and he says, whose image is this? And they said, Caesar's. He says, give it back to Caesar. But if Jesus would have pulled you out of his pocket and said, who were you created in the image of? The biblical answer is, you were created in the image of God. You say, what does that mean? It means you belong to God. So we ought to render, therefore, unto God the things which be God's. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So we should render... The things which belong to Caesar unto Caesar, and the things which belong to God unto God. Go back to Luke chapter 20, look at verse 26. And they could not take hold of his words. Luke 20, 26. Before the people, and they marveled. I mean, it's good when your enemies are impressed, like, wow, that was a good answer. I mean, you made us look like a bunch of idiots, but that was a good answer. And they marveled at his answers. Notice and held their peace. So round one goes to Jesus. They held their peace. They were done. Now who's this? These are the, the, the men that were not just men, that feigned themselves to be just men. In Matthew we're told they are the Herodians, which were a political group, which is why they ask a political question, right? About rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. So round one, Ding, 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 goes to Jesus. Then in verse 27, we see round two. We see question number two. The first question was a question about rendering tribute to Caesar. The second question has to do with the resurrection of the dead. Luke 20, 27. Then came to him, then, of course, there's a series of questions. First group could not take hold of his words. They marveled at his answers and held their peace. They were done. Jesus says, any more questions? Like, no, we're good, we're good. But then came to him, here comes another group, certain of the Sadducees. So in the Bible, you had these two groups of these hyper-religious Jews. One were called Pharisees, one were called Sadducees. They're both bad. But the major difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we see in Scripture is that one believed in the resurrection and the other denied the resurrection. And I'm not preaching about this tonight, but in the book of Acts, Paul actually gets himself out of trouble by instigating a fight between the Pharisees and the Sadducees on the question of the resurrection. And uh, so that's just something good to know about these people. But here in verse 27, the Bible says, Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which, notice what the Bible says, deny that there is any resurrection. So they don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe that there's a resurrection. They don't believe that anything happens after this life. When I was a kid growing up in church in Sunday school, we were taught that the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in a 
uh, afterlife. They don't believe in heaven. So this is why they are sad, you see. And that was just a way they helped us remember that. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. Notice, and they asked him. Here's question number two, round number two, verse 28, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us. So they're, they're got, they got to set up their question. And this question requires a big setup. Moses wrote unto us, if any man's brother die having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, what, what, is, what is this question? What is the backdrop to this question? Go to Deuteronomy real quickly. Let's just look at where they're getting this from. Deuteronomy 25. In the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25. Look at verse 5. Deuteronomy 25, 5. Just so you understand the background and the context of the question, Moses taught in Deuteronomy 25, 5, if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. The idea is that the wife, the widow is not to go out and marry some other foreigner or other person. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be so the brother's supposed to marry her and obviously have children with her, but the firstborn, and it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So when a man married a wife and he died without a child, then it was under the Mosaic law, his brother was supposed to then marry that wife, have children with her, but the first child would carry on the name of the brother that was dead, that that name would not be put out of Israel. That's the context in which this question is being asked. Go back to Luke chapter 20. Because they asked, saying, Master Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. I want you to notice the absurdity of this question. Verse 29. They said, here's the question. They're, they're talking to the Lord Jesus Christ saying, ready? Here's the question. You got to pay attention. Because there's a lot of parts to this question. They said, there were therefore seven brethren. I, and I, I love these questions. I mean, I don't love these questions. I actually am annoyed by these questions. But people, it's funny to me that this is documented in the Bible because people often do this. They'll ask these like radical, hypothetical questions that like never will happen. And the absurdity of this question is that this will never happen. But they asked a the question, verse 29. And I'm sure they thought they were really smart. They were there for seven brothers. He said, here's the thing, Jesus. Okay, so there, 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 there were seven brothers, right? You should always be careful when people say, so there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. She's like, okay. And the second took her to wife and he died childless. And the third took her and in like manner, the seven also. So here's what they're saying. This guy, he has seven brothers, right? He marries this woman. He dies. No children. So his brother, because you know what Moses said, his brother marries her, and then he dies without children. And then the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. All seven brothers married the, one, the same lady. They all died without children. And, you know, I'm sure Jesus is thinking to himself, like, this, they need to make a Dateline episode about this. 
Like, there needs to be like a 2020 special about this woman. I mean, this woman should be called, you know, the Black Widow. Are you serious? Look, when you've had seven husbands and they've all died, someone should look into that. Someone should start digging up your backyard. There's a problem there. So they asked this just absurd question. They said, and the third took her in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. And then, verse 32, last of all, the woman died also. Well, praise the Lord. I don't know if I should feel bad for this lady or if I should be suspicious of her, but then she dies. So you have just the absurdity of the question. But then I want you to understand the assumption that's being made in the question. So, Because here's really the question. That's just the setup. The question is this, verse 33. Therefore, in the resurrection, remember, these are people that do not believe in the resurrection. They do not believe in an afterlife. They're asking, so in heaven, that's what they're asking. In the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For the seven had her to wife. Now, the reason that they have to say that all the children died is because logically you would think, okay, well, she married seven brothers, but she had a child with one of them. So in the resurrection, she's going to be married to that guy. But they're like, no, no, no. Seven brothers, all died, no children. Whose wife is she going to be? Look at verse 33. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, here's Jesus' question, answer, and there's, there's more to the answer. First he deals with the assumption. The assumption is this. And look, this is what I've learned about these types of situations. The reason that you get into these debates with people is because they often come to the Bible with assumptions. And a lot of times when people, they're asking you questions about dispensationalism or about the pre-trip rapture or about all sorts of weird things that the Bible does not teach. And a lot of times we can't even answer the question because we have to start with their assumption. Your assumption is that this is true because of this, but you're wrong about this. So Jesus begins with their assumption, verse 34. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus says, you're making an assumption that people are married in heaven. And Jesus says, marriages till death do us part. In, in this world, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But in, I love how he says there in verse 35, that world. He says, that world and the resurrection from the dead. He says, those people are neither marry nor are given an in marriage. You say, why don't they marry in heaven? Here's why, verse 36. Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now, let me just say a couple things there. Jesus is saying that we are equal to the angels in the same sense that we don't die anymore. Neither can they die anymore, for they are equals unto the angels and are the children of God. He says they're equal to the angels, but the difference is they're the children of God. So there's a verse right there that differentiates between the angels and the children of God. The, the only similarity that will be in heaven is that neither angels nor the children of God in the resurrection die. Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. And here's what Jesus is saying. The purpose for marriage is procreation. It's because on this earth, people live and die. And he gave marriage. 
He put Adam and Eve together, and then what did he say? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Here's the thing. In heaven, there's no more procreation. No one's being born in heaven. Whoever's there is there. That's it. No one is born and no one dies. We're equal unto the angels. Neither can they die anymore. So there's no need for marriage in heaven because there's no need to continue to have children on this earth, or on, in heaven, like we have on this earth. He says, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. So Jesus begins by dismantling their assumption. Their absurdity is brought on by their assumption. He dismantles their assumption, and then he answers the question. Here's the answer, verse 37. Now that the dead are raised, I want you to notice that Jesus clearly states, the dead are raised. He did not believe what the Sadducees believed. Not only did not, he said, I am the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, Jesus says, even Moses showeth at the bush. He brings up a story that all the Jews would be familiar with, the story of the burning bush, where God spoke to Moses through the bush. He says, even Moses showed us this truth of the resurrection at the bush when he calleth the Lord God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 3, 6, the Bible says, Moreover, he said, this is God speaking to Moses through the burning bush. He said, I am the God of thy father. Obviously, Moses was living hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God says to Moses, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, usually when we look at that verse, and we should, there's nothing wrong with this. But usually when we look at that verse, we emphasize the present tense of God, the I am that I am. And there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus is about to emphasize that for us as well. God is self-existing. He's the, uh, he's the self-preserved. He, he, it's, it's the present tense God. I am. But what Jesus is also pointing out is that he's not only speaking in present tense of God, but he's speaking in present tense of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am, praise God, the God of, but he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. The point that Jesus is making is this. If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were dead, he would have said, I was the God of. I was the God of Abraham, but he's dead now. He's gone now. I was the God of Isaac, but he's gone now. I was the God of Jacob, but he's gone now. The fact that he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is both present tense for him and them. Why? Because they're in heaven, because there is a resurrection. So in Luke 20, 37, he says, Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called it the Lord God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, for he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. So he's saying, there's a resurrection. He didn't say, I was the God of. He said, I am, meaning I'm here and they are too. Luke 20, 39, Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said, 
The scribes are happy with this answer because they don't like the Sadducees either. So they're actually happy with this. And after that, they durst not ask him any questions at all. The word durst means dared. They dared not ask him any questions at all. So that's the end of round two. Ding, ding, ding. Jesus wins again. Praise God. Now they're done. But Jesus is just getting started. Now he has a question of his own. So we get this bonus round, round three. And it's a question that Jesus actually puts forth to them about Christ being David's son. Look at verse 41. And he, Jesus, said unto them. It's interesting to me because they asked him all the questions at the beginning of the chapter about what authority, by what authority doest thou these things? And then they're asking him these questions about rendering tribute to Caesar and the resurrection of the dead. And now Jesus has a question for them. He said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? Now the word Christ, and I don't have time to go through this, you can study this in your own, but the Bible is very clear about the fact that the word Christ means Messiah. Messiah is a reference to, it means the anointed one, the, the chosen one, the one that God chose, the one that God would send. So Jesus says, you know, your teachers, they say that Christ is David's son. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is bringing this up, but this is true. Remember, Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah. And all throughout the Bible, he's referred to as the son of David. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. But he asked them this question, how say they that Christ is David's son? See, the understanding at that time, and this is true, they thought, and they thought this correctly, that the Christ or the Messiah would be a physical descendant of David. That one of the qualifications to be the Messiah is that you have to be a physical descendant of David. So Jesus says, how say they that Christ is David's son? Question mark. And I'm sure they're kind of saying like, What do you mean? Everybody knows that. All throughout the Old Testament, we're told that the Messiah is going to be David's son. And then Jesus says, verse 42, and David himself saith in the book of Psalms. So now Jesus is going to quote the book of Psalms, Psalm 110 and verse 1, if you'd like to write it down for your notes. The Lord. Now the word Lord, you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? That's Jehovah God. The I am that I am, the self-existing one. The Lord, so Jesus is saying, okay, if Christ is David's son, then why did David himself, because David wrote Psalm 110 in verse 1, why did David himself say this? So this is a quote of David from the book of Psalms. The Lord, meaning the Lord Jehovah God, the I am that I am, this is David speaking, the Lord God said unto my Lord, My Lord, the word Lord there is a reference to the Christ or the Messiah. David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. The word Lord, you see the the capital L, lowercase o-r-d? That is not necessarily referring to Jehovah. That is a term that just simply means boss. When somebody said, call somebody their Lord, 
It meant that they were their authority. They were submitting under that individual's authority. That person was their boss. That person was in charge of them. The Bible teaches that the Christ, the Messiah, would be David's son. But here you have David saying, the Lord said to the Christ, and, and David calls the Christ, my Lord. He's saying, God said to my boss, sit thou on my right hand till I make that enemy thy footstool. And Jesus is asking, now, if, if the Christ is David's son, why is David calling him the Lord? Why is David calling him the boss? Because generally, you know, I'm, I'm not going to look at my children and say, sure thing, boss. Right? They asked me to do something. I'm going to say, who do you think you're talking to? I, I don't work for you. You work for me. You know, you, the, the way this works is you look at your boss and say, yes, sir. Your boss doesn't look at you and say, sure thing, no problem, I'll have it done by, no. But here David, King David, one of the greatest characters in the Old Testament, is looking at the Messiah and saying, that's my Lord. Look at verse 44, Luke 20, 44. Jesus is saying, David therefore calleth him Lord. David therefore calleth him boss. David therefore calleth him the guy in charge. How is he then his son? Here's what Jesus is saying. How is David calling the Messiah the boss if, if the Messiah is his son and that would mean that he's subordinate? He's under David. But David is putting himself under the Messiah. Jesus says, how does that work? You ever thought about that? And he said, what's the answer to the question? Revelation 22. Revelation 22. The answer to the question is this. It's what we'll celebrate on Christmas. In fact, I should probably just bring this up on Christmas because that's like three weeks away and by then none of you will remember this sermon. All of you will have forgotten this, so I'll be safe. The answer to the question is this, that God, who's David's boss, became flesh and came under the lineage of David. So the Christ is both before and after David. The Christ is both above and in a sense of lineage and descendancy below David. Here's how Jesus said it in the book of Revelation, Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Notice what he says. He's literally saying this about David. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. He said, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He said, what in the world does that mean? Here's what he's saying. He says, I'm the root and the fruit of David. If you think of a tree, he says, I'm the root and I'm the fruit. You say, how can you be the root and the fruit? He says, well, that is a testimony to my deity. That is a testimony to the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. It's the same thing that he says in Revelation 21, verse 6. I showed you 22 because it's actually about David. I am the root and the offspring of David. Here's what he could say. I am the father and the son of David. I come before and after David. 
How can this be? See, they thought that the Messiah was just going to be a physical descendant of David. And Jesus is showing them, no, he is going to be a physical descendant of David. But it's so much more than that. He said, I'm David's Lord. Notice what he says in Revelation 21.6. And he said unto me, it is done. Notice what Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega. That's, that's, he's saying, I'm A and Z. And everything in between. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountains of the waters of life freely. Look at Revelation 22, 13. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Earlier in Revelation, I won't have you turn there. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come. The Almighty. Go back to Luke chapter 20. See, they are attacking Jesus, and Jesus says, I got a question for you. Because remember, we're in the Passion Week. We're just a couple of days before the crucifixion of Christ, and we're just a couple of days after Jesus just entered Jerusalem on a donkey, declaring himself the Messiah. And he says, let me ask you a question about the Messiah. How is the Messiah David's son when David himself says, that the Lord said unto the Messiah, and he calls him my Lord. He says, David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? And what Jesus is showing them and trying to point out to them is his deity. Amen. That he is the root and the offspring of David. That he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, I am and which was the root, and which is to come, the offspring. Luke 20, 45. Look at it. We're, we're done. Luke 20, 45. Then in the audience of the people, he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes. These are the people that were just questioning him. Which desire to walk in long robes, and love the greetings in the markets, and the high seats in the synagogues, and the chief rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a show make long prayers, the same shall receive greater damnation. You say, why is Jesus speaking so freely against these people? Because they have ultimately held their peace. It's, it's not round one goes to Jesus, round two goes to Jesus. That was great. Round three, it's a knockout punch. They're done. They're knocked out. They're, they're lying on the floor unconscious. When Jesus tells the people, beware of the scribes, which desire to walk in long robes and, and love greetings in the markets and the high seats in the synagogue and the chief rooms at the feast, which of our widows' houses and for a show make long pretests, the same shall receive greater damnation. Round three, ding, 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 Jesus wins. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, this battle of wits, between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, lewd men of the baser sort, just him against the devil and all his helpers, and we just see him victorious. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for these questions and these applications, these answers, the lessons we can learn from them. 
Help us to realize that Jesus is more than just a man. He's God in the flesh. And help us to remember that there is a resurrection. There's something to live for more than this life. And we were created in the image of God. And we belong to him. So let us render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to remind you that uh, we do not, we are canceling the uh, homeschool 